This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Patterson Program, where you'll learn how to improve your health from the inside out. And now, your host, Clint Patterson. Well, I'm excited, thrilled to have our guest today. You know, one of the great things about being on a plant-based diet, as we are when we follow the Patterson program, is that we're not only looking after ourselves, but we're looking after the planet and we're looking after animals. And so today we have one of the heavyweights with us whose whole family has been involved in this movement for some time. So I'm going to give you a little bit of his background in a sec, but I just want to say, first of all, thank you, Ocean Robbins, for joining us on this podcast episode. Well, thank you so much. You know, it's funny with the obesity epidemic being what it is, most people don't want to be called a heavyweight. But when it comes to this topic, we also want to be taken seriously. So I'm going to take that as a compliment and think that being called a lightweight would have been an insult. But it's just kind of funny how words mean different things in different contexts. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. So, you know, you've got a fantastic publicist and she has sent me uh, what is what I consider working as a another side job that I've had for nearly 20 years in stand-up comedy and, and hosting corporate events. It's a fantastic bio. And I like good bios because often mine's being used to be for my introductions and so forth. So I'm going to read out your bio because I think it's very appropriate given how much you and your family have achieved. So folks can sit back and listen to uh, this short bio before we proceed. Ocean Robbins is the author of the newly released book, 31 Day Food Revolution, Heal Your Body, Feel Great and Transform the World. He serves as CEO and co-founder of the 500,000 plus member Food Revolution Network, one of the largest communities of healthy eating advocates on the planet. Ocean has held hundreds of live seminars and events that have touched millions of lives in 190 nations. His grandfather founded Baskin Robbins. That's right, the ice cream chain. So we'll get into this in a minute. And his father, John Robbins, walked away from that family company to write bestsellers like Diet for a New America and become a renowned health advocate. And now Ocean is on a mission to transform the industrialized food culture into one that celebrates and supports healthy people and a healthy planet. So Ocean, what's it feel like when I read that out? How do you feel? You must feel just like such a great human being to hear that about yourself when it's read out. <laughs> you know, I appreciate it. And, you know, I'm proud of what I've accomplished. And the reason I'm proud of it and what my family has accomplished is because it translates into less people suffering, less tropical rainforests being cut down for cattle grazing less climate destabilization, more topsoil for future generations, less farmers getting poisoned in the fields because they're working with neurotoxic pesticides, and more human beings who aren't losing their loved ones to heart disease and cancer and type 2 diabetes, more people who have the mobility and the, the levity they need to dance and run and play because they're not bogged down by excess pounds. So to me, the food revolution is about freedom. It's about vitality and it's about health for us and for our planet. And the fact that I get to spend my life advocating for a food revolution means mm -hmm. I get to help people every single day of my life to be healthier and happier and more satisfied 
and to build a healthier, happier world. And so, yeah, that is a real privilege, Clint. It really is. And I love that you've invited me to join you in this mission and that you are doing so much for so many people. And thanks for bringing me into it with you. Well, as I said earlier, it's it's absolute pleasure. And I want it from a personal point of view, you know, and, and I never realized I'd have the opportunity to tell this story to yourself, but, uh, I um the first book that I ever touched that talked about changing to a plant-based diet was your dad's book and it came into my hands way before I was ready and I think there is a um a reluctance to a lot of folks who are following a western diet who enjoy the western diet addicted to the western diet and I was given the book and I was told you must read this book it was from an american girl she was in her 20s I was probably similar age, um, uh, probably late 20s. And uh, I, read, I read the book, and it's confronting. You know, your dad's book, Diet for a New America, big American flag on the front of the copy that I had. And I'm reading it, I'm like, I couldn't quite handle the truth that were in there. And this was the first exposure that I had, and some of our listeners may have, have read that book. And it was the first time that I was made aware that or draw to my attention how much suffering there is for animals. And yeah, you know, the message, it took then years later for my own health to decline before I then took the leap that was required. But your dad's been in this movement as a pioneer. And then going back earlier, your grandfather famously started the ice cream chain. So perhaps you could walk us through your uh, version of, of your family history and how you came to, to your position as well. Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, my grandpa, Irvin Robbins, founded an ice cream company, the Baskin Robbins Company. Back in those days in the late 40s, there were basically three flavors of ice cream. There was chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla. And my grandpa got the idea that there could be a lot more flavors, 31 in fact, one for each day of the month. So he joined with his brother-in-law, Bert Baskin, in uh, in launching the ice cream company and kind of inventing inventing franchising in the United States. My dad, John, grew up with an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool in the backyard and 31 <laughs> flavors of ice cream in the freezer. Uh, he was groomed from early childhood to one day join in running the family company. But when he was in his early 20s, he was offered that chance, and he said no. And he walked away from a path that was practically paved with gold and ice cream to, as we jokingly say in our family, follow his own rocky road. And uh, ended up moving with my mom to a little island off the coast of Canada where they built this one-room log cabin. They grew most of their own food. They lived very simply. They practiced yoga and meditation for several hours a day. And they named their kid Ocean. Of course, yeah. that would be me. And then when I got a little older, my dad ended up becoming a best-selling author with the publication of books like Diet for a New America. And he inspired millions of people to look at their food choices as a chance to make a difference in the world. So I grew up, you know, with a family that was obviously up to big things. My grandpa with the ice cream business mm -hmm. and then, you know, my my dad with the world changing business. And then uh, I was inspired by their examples. So at the age of 16, I founded a nonprofit organization called Yes. I traveled the country speaking to school assemblies about the environment and how youth could make a difference in the world and reached more than 650,000 students. And then I started organizing these transformational events for young leaders. And the thought was, how can we help young people to make a bigger difference on the planet and to take our part as the leaders of the future? So I worked with leaders in over 65 countries over the course of 20 years. And what I saw as I organized for grassroots positive change all over the planet was that everybody eats and that what we're eating is having this huge effect. And essentially what my dad's 
work had been all about with his research and his writings was right on the nose. I saw it with my own eyes that the United States was exporting ways of producing food with pesticides and GMOs and herbicides and fungicides and mass production. We were exporting ways of processing it with white flour and white sugar and chemicals with names we can't pronounce and and also uh, s selling it with KFC and McDonald's and Baskin Robbins spreading all over the globe. And that as this was happening, all over the planet, wastelines were expanding and hospitals were filling up. People were getting diseases they'd never had before, like heart disease and cancer and type 2 diabetes, which were rare, virtually unheard of a couple generations back. Now they're becoming the primary causes of death in nation after nation, from Japan to China, from, from Russia, all over the world. And guess where it started? It started in this country. And we're kind of on the front of the curve on this. And we now have obesity rates and uh, overweight rates that are unparalleled, except by Mexico, which is following along very closely. Two thirds of our population is overweight or obese. We have more people in the United States right now per capita that are chronically ill, that are living with miserable, sick, frustrating, painful, debilitating conditions than any population that's ever lived. We spend 19% of our entire gross domestic product on what we call healthcare which is really disease symptom management. Uh, medical treatment is the leading cause of bankruptcy for individuals, but it's also bankrupting our nation. You know, Medicare is something we literally can't afford if we keep spending like we are on disease symptom management by having so many people sick. Costs of Alzheimer's treatment are expected to triple in the next generation. So who's gonna pay for all that? My generation is, right? And so what are we gonna do? Well, we gotta stem the tide by changing what we eat. So I realized that food was at the center of so much, and it was a place where we could make a huge impact. And so I decided to join forces in 2012 with my dad directly, and we launched Food Revolution Network. We've been working online, organizing people all over the world. I'm the CEO. We now have more than 500,000 members. Mm. We've reached millions of people with our mission and our message, and we're just getting started. But you know what lights me up every day of my life is the fact that I get to advocate for something that really, truly matters and that helps people. You know, Food's the foundation of health. Unfortunately, it's also become the foundation of disease, but we can turn that around. <laughs> Tell us about the, uh, the Food Revolution Network and how you actually change lives. Tell us how it works. Absolutely. So um, Food Revolution Network is an online-based education and advocacy community. And, you know, our goal is healthy, ethical, and sustainable food for everyone who eats. We really bridge the personal and the social and the systemic or political dimensions of food. So we look a lot at health, you know, got to put your own oxygen mask on first before helping <laughs> others. But we also need to save the freaking plane, you know, because we're in a situation right now where there are some pretty big major problems going on in the world. And a lot of them come back to what we eat. You know, food is food is fueling climate change, aquifer depletion, you know, uh, it's fueling topsoil erosion. It's it's creating conditions where deserts are growing and uh, we may or may not be able to feed humanity in a generation or two because we're on a collision course with collapse of our food production systems because we're being so unsustainable. But the good news is we can turn that around. So Food Revolution Network is standing for a real food revolution in our health, in our bodies, in our relationship with food, and also in how we consume foods that that serve a healthier planet for all of us. And we do that through online telesummits, classes, yep. Yep. email newsletter, blog article. We have, you know, millions of people visiting our blog at foodrevolution.org every year. And now our newest initiative, the one that I'm most excited about right now, is a new book, 31 Day Food Revolution, which I've just released. And I'm so excited about it. Uh, the subtitle is 
heal your body, feel great, and transform your world. And I really captured our message and I'm putting it into simple, actionable steps you can take every day to get the results you want. I love how you've tied in the 31-day link with the 31 flavors from uh, that. That wasn't missed. Oh, on you me. noticed that, I noticed huh? that one, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, what I also um, find impressive after looking at the 31-day food revolution website is uh, the endorsements. I mean, you've got some endorsements from very, very uh, prominent people in the world, uh, not just in the plant-based in the world like uh, Dean Ornish uh, and uh, Dr. Greger and so forth, but um, from Paul McCartney. Uh, I mean... The opportunity to reach a large audience is obviously there with this book. Which can you tell us when did it launch? Where can people get it? And then we'll go into details about uh, why did you write it and so forth. Yeah, give us a short promotion about the book. Absolutely. Well, so so the book is um, came out February fifth, and it's about really how you can put this into action. You know, at the end of the day, cancer doesn't care a heck of a lot how much you know or how many podcasts you listen to or how many <laughs> books you read. Uh, no, no offense to either of us, Clint, but at the end of the day, cancer yeah. does care what you eat and how you live. Yeah. So do heart disease and arthritis and all of the other major ailments and challenges that we're facing right now. And so my goal is to help people get relief yeah. and to help people put what we know into action. You know, I think a lot of what we face isn't a crisis of not knowing what to do. It's not doing what we know. If all that was needed was for people to know we need to eat more vegetables, we need to eat less sugar and processed junk, we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic in America. But unfortunately, just knowing it isn't enough. Mm. So I've been a student of looking at what does it take to turn knowledge into action so you can get real results. Mm -hmm. And my book combines knowledge with action. Every single chapter ends with simple action steps you can take to put it into practice. There are 31 chapters because, of course, at the end of the day, uh, 31 steps to health will give you more satisfaction and more joy even than 31 flavors of ice cream. And I, I divided the book into four parts. And part one is detoxify. And that's mm -hmm. where we really look at how you can simply and easily rid your body, your health, your kitchen, your life of toxins, some of which you may not even know are there mm -hmm. that could be making you sick. And part two is is nourish. And that's where we look at how you can really saturate your body with the wonderful micronutrients and macronutrients that help you thrive. And it, we look at the, the best foods for fighting cancer and dementia and, and uh, inflammation yes. and uh, heart disease and how you can bring all that down and bring your joy in your life up. And then, and then part three is gather. That's where we look at the social side of food. You know, a lot of us think that we're lone wolves. Most diet books out there treat it like you can just change your diet all by yourself. But guess what? We're, we're connected to food with a lot of other people. We share meals, whether or not in households and at work and family gatherings and all kinds of events and places. So mm -hmm. when you get the social side supporting you instead of fighting against you, yeah. then it actually helps you to stay on your path. And the key is learning how to navigate tricky social dynamics so everyone wins and everyone feels respected and loved. You don't all have to agree, but you can all agree that everyone should feel respected in their food choices and values. And, and then we also look at how you can be a positive influence on people you love without feeling like you're shoving an ideology down their throats. And then in part four, transform, the focus is on how food can be a tool of positive change. You know, the food revolution is one you can fight with your knife and your fork. And this revolution has no losers. Everyone wins. You win, your community wins, your family wins, your whole planet wins. So we look at the global impact and the political impact and at how food can be a way to, uh, to make a difference on this planet that we love. And I'm going to suggest that everybody listening right now, I'm sure you care about the world we live in. And a lot of us have become cynical because it can feel like the problems we're facing are so freaking overwhelming mm. that it's easy to lose hope. 
But what I'm saying is that when you actually know you can do something, you do. You know, if there was a, if there was somebody you loved who was suffering and you knew that a simple action you could take would make a huge difference in their life, I'll bet you would do it if you really knew it mattered. But yet we become cynical because we're sick of greenwashing of people lying to us and telling us that something matters. And it turns out it was an empty promise. You know, politicians that secure our votes with empty promises and at the end of the day, they don't deliver. And a lot of us deal with this and we get cynical. But I'm saying that when it comes to food, you have immense power to make an impact in a positive, constructive way. And the spoiler alert is it's a heck of a lot easier to change your world than you ever imagined. I'll show you how. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's a uh, writing a book like this with the objective to cover so much like you have is a big, a big task. OK, so other people may have felt that they have uh, tackled everything at once, which it sounds like your book does. Right. So you've got you've got the challenge of people finding it hard to transition to a plant based diet, not knowing if they can. And so what do you think? What problems mostly do you think the book solves for folks? Oh, well, it solves uh, confusion okay. about what's healthy and what's not, because, you know, I'm not trying to push an ideology. I'm trying to help you get healthy and get the results you want. And so I look at what the medical research actually says. Uh, pulling from more than 400 scientific journals that are peer-reviewed in the course of the, of the book. I've, I've spent a lot of time researching, and you don't have to. You can just get yeah. the distilled wisdom. Yeah. But we actually have thousands of medical studies that all point in the same direction. He, uh, medical science is not nearly as confused as most of us think about what human beings actually need to eat if we want to get results and get healthy. So I share that. I break it down, and I make it simple and easy and accessible. And this isn't about some fundamentalist ideology. It's about sure. basic science and how mm -hmm. you put it into practice if you actually want to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And then I also solve the problem of apathy and lethargy by giving simple bite-sized steps you can take to get momentum, to get results, and to keep on going. And in fact, not only is there one action step for every chapter, there are actually three because I want to meet people where they are. So some people are more advanced. Some people are more early on the path. Wherever you are, I welcome you. This is a big tent approach. And one of the other beautiful things I think about the food revolution is room for, there's room for everybody in this revolution. Hmm. So if you're a mainstream kind of eater who's struggling to give up, you know, Twinkies, um, <laughs> welcome to the club. You know, there's room for you here and let's, yeah. let's help you make some progress so you can get the results you want. Hmm. And if you're like a long term hardcore vegan who's trying to figure out whether or not a teaspoon is, of honey is OK in your green tea. <laughs> You know, welcome to the club. You know, I'll help you solve that one because you can always take more steps. And I'll yeah. bet you if you're in that position that you probably have some friends and loved ones who don't eat quite the way you do. Yes. And maybe there's a bit of tension around that. And I'll help you navigate that. Now, so wherever you are, I welcome you. Let's let's move forward together. Let's get informed and let's make some progress and let's take some action. Yeah. The latter is where uh, our audience is more at. We've got a lot of um, people who have been following a plant based diet for a long period of time. They've got all the nuances down and they, their questions are more like the teaspoon of honey style. Uh, so yeah. that's going to be very helpful. You've got, I've brought up the website page here and I'm just looking at part two, Nourish, which you mentioned before as you walk through each of the four parts. You talk about heal your gut. Now, this is a, a big focus of what we do when we're attempting to uh, reduce inflammation and get well from tricky, very difficult diseases like autoimmune diseases. One a couple of things we advocate for healing the gut, and I'd like to get your input on this and maybe some other ideas. Um, talk a lot about leafy greens, just leafy greens to feed the yes. uh, gut bacteria. And um, 
focusing on easy to digest foods, things like quinoa and buckwheat that are alkalizing and so forth. Any other uh, ideas around this that you've found uh, um, suitable for your book? Well, so the core, the two main things that you need to understand if you want to heal your gut are prebiotics and probiotics. So probiotics are more well-known. They're the good bacteria that, um, you know, that digest your food and that produce the neurotransmitters that give your brain the nourishment it needs to, to be happy and well. They say the gut's like your second brain, and it yeah. really is. And when, you, mm -hmm. when we think about you know, trusting our gut, well, that's more than just a concept. There's actual science behind it. Mm -hmm. Your gut has incredible wisdom. And a lot of that wisdom isn't actually yours. It's your bacteria. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, you have a couple pounds of bacteria in your digestive tract and, and they, are, uh, they have more DNA by far than you do. And they are what kind of makes your world go around way, way more than you recognize. So you want to obviously feed the good guys. And that's where prebiotics come in because it's actually really hard when you're taking probiotics to have them make it all the way down to the lower intestine yeah. where they do their magic. A lot of them die because your stomach is like a pH of what, three or something? Mm -hmm. So it's very acidic and it, it's actually designed to kill critters, right? <laughs> yeah. So they don't tend to make it down very easily. Some do, and probiotics can be helpful. But uh, prebiotics are kind of where it's at because that's where you feed the good guys who are already there and help the ones that make it there prosper. And what they love to eat is fiber. There are a lot of different kinds of fiber. The average American gets less than half the recommended daily allowance for fiber. We get about 15 grams a day. The recommended amount is about 30. But our Paleolithic ancestors got about 100. So uh, it could be that we should be getting, you know, five, six, eight times more than we mm. are right now. And I'll tell you where fiber is. It's in whole plant foods. Uh, it's not in animal products. There is absolutely zero fiber in any meat, dairy, eggs, mm. fish. None of them have any fiber whatsoever. Mm. So uh, if you want to get more fiber, it's whole plant food. There's also no fiber in bottled oils. There's mm. very little in white flour. There's very little in sugar, but there's a lot in vegetables. Uh, there's a lot in legumes, and there's actually mm. quite a bit in whole grains. So from a fiber standpoint, these are your friend. And uh, less than 5% of the U.S. population gets the recommended amount. But you can be in that 5% and you can even go beyond that and you'll get tremendous benefits because uh, the fiber is what the good bacteria love. Now, there are certain kinds of fiber that are extra yummy for them. They're, mm -hmm. they're treats. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you really want to feed the good guys, then give them the treats. So that's where some of my favorites, jicama is incredibly high and wonderful uh, fiber and also Jerusalem artichokes. Uh, Jerusalem artichokes, Jerusalem thank artichokes. you. Sorry, what yeah. was the one prior to that? I'd never heard that jicama. before. Jicama, jicama. What's so jicama? It's a, it's a white colored tuber that it grows underground. It tastes kind of like an apple, but a little less sweet. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's a vegetable, but uh -huh. it's great in salads. And you, some people just like to chop it up and eat it, you know, in slivers or slices. Mm -hmm. You can even chop it really thin and make a wrap with it because it kind of holds together and it can wrap around stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but jicama is a really amazingly underappreciated superfood yeah. uh, when it comes to feeding the good bacteria in your gut. And then, you know, bananas have some good, uh, wonderful nourishment for the good bacteria. Resistant starch, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are a few of my favorites. Acacia gum, baobab. Th these are things we don't eat very much of. Yeah, right. Sometimes people get them in powders if you're yeah. looking for some prebiotic powders. And it's mm. not a bad supplement to take. Honestly, if you had to choose between taking a prebiotic supplement and a probiotic, I'd probably go with the prebiotic because that's really how you feed the good guys. And the truth is, right now you've got them. You just... Um, you just may not have enough of them.
Now, let me add to that that you also don't want to feed the bad guys. So there are some bacteria that we know are bad, like E. coli or you know Salmonella. But there are other bacteria that are that are kind of bad that you probably don't want in your stomach either. And guess what they love? They love sugar. Mm. Very interesting. They love sugar. They love processed junk. Mm. And when you eat, eat that stuff, you actually are populating your digestive tract with bacteria that like to eat that. Now, they're going to actually send signals to your body to say they're hungry and they want more. So if you feed the good guys, they're going to make you crave good foods. But if you feed the bad guys, they're going to make you crave bad foods. So this is one, I think, vastly under-recognized element of the science of food addiction, hmm. is that uh, there are a lot of elements to it, of course, but one of them is that there are bacteria in your gut that actually get addicted to junk food and hmm. make you think that you want it, because mm -hmm. they do. Yeah, most definitely. So if you were to, if we just overly generalize this, we'd say that sugar is the predominant source for feeding the bad guys? Would you go so far to say that? Or could we also include I, fats? Or, I mean, what else perhaps? I think sugar feeds sugar. the bad guys. And I think yeah. animal products are a wasted opportunity because they don't right. provide any fiber for the good guys. Right. Um, yeah, nice. I don't think they literally feed the bad guys. Yeah. But what you really want to do is not just, you know, get rid of the bad stuff, but actually say yes to the good stuff. And I'm really interested in crowding out Yes. The bad with the good. Yes. Uh, so it's not about depriving yourself. A lot of people take away the donuts and the Coke and the steak and whatever else. And then they look at their plate and all they've got is a little side of plain mashed potatoes yeah. and some peas or something. And they're like, what How am I going to eat? Right? No, you want to fill your plate with all kinds of wonderful foods and yes. base your diet around that. And then, uh, and then you get the results. I, at the end of the day, you know, an ice cream cone is not going to kill anybody. Neither is a donut once in a blue moon. It's what you do day in and day out that matters mm. the most. But some of us like to draw bright lines because we can't trust ourselves mm. to eat a little bit of something. You yeah. know, bet you can't eat just one isn't just a catchy marketing slogan. It's actually a threat. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, one that the company delivers on. There are a lot of foods out there that people can't eat just one of because they've been scientifically designed to manipulate our taste buds and our brains to crave them and want more and get addicted to them and to not know when we're full. So uh, you got to stay away from that stuff. There are 1,400 chemicals in the modern diet that are added by the processed food industry. Additives, flavorings, colorings, all this stuff, emulsifiers, and they're all added to our food. Most of them have never been tested for their real long-term impact on human beings. Mm -hmm. And now we wonder why we've got an obesity epidemic. Well, our food has become food-like products Mm. and it's toxic and it's killing us. So that's why it's mm. time to make a change. Now, a lot of people listening might say, oh, I don't eat that stuff. You know, I don't go to McDonald's. I don't right. drink Coke. I don't, you know, I'm way ahead of that. Let me say that the, the toxic food culture makes you, makes it seem, because normal is so bad for a lot of us, it makes it seem like you're doing, you can be doing way better than the other folks around you yeah. and still not, not be in a place that's optimal. Yeah. And so I think part of the food revolution is lovingly and gently starting where you are and then moving towards where you really wanna be. And most of us could eat a lot more vegetables than we are. Let me just make this really clear. You could eat uh, five times the average American's helping of vegetables and be nowhere near what's best because the average American doesn't get hardly any. So, uh, you know, I think you could eat a couple pounds of vegetables a day and still get more. They're yeah. that good for you. I mean, mm -hmm. the science is just absolutely overwhelming. So all kinds of vegetables, obviously we hear about kale a lot, but you can even go with cabbage. I mean, cabbage isn't that expensive. Find ways to love it and enjoy it. Learn to love foods that love you back and your, your body will thank you for the rest of your life. I once did a, a glass of cabbage juice through the juicer and nearly vomited. 
So that yeah. was uh, that stuff going. Don't if recommend you, that. Not, not, At least uh, not, that, not for the faint of heart. <laughs> if you can drink a glass of pure cabbage juice, you really, your microbiome has adjusted in, in a very, very uh, uh, aggressive manner to be able to handle that. So, yeah, no, cabbage is one of those things yeah. that gets sweeter when it gets cooked. Right, uh, so, right. So, you know, yeah. coleslaw, I mean, you yeah. can enjoy that, but yeah. it's got a nice crunch to it. Yes. But some foods, onions are another one. They just totally change when they're cooked. Yes. And it's why, you know, I love raw foods and there's yes. a lot of benefits to it. But sometimes we can eat more of things when they're cooked because they're softer and they get sweeter and more palatable. So yes. obviously you have to find what works for you. But I think a whole mixture of raw and cooked is, is optimal. And that's exactly my conclusion after doing eight months for raw, with raw foods and, and finding that I got tremendous pain relief, but I was unable to sustain my weight, even eating more than my daily required intake of nuts and seeds that were being yeah. soaked and, and activated. Uh, and, and, and it was, you know, it had great benefits. But then when I was able to add some more cooked foods back in, then my body uh, found further healing path uh, after that. But people know my story. We want to know about more about yours. Getting back to the book, you know, we talked about healing the gut in part two. Uh, uh, chapter or part number 12 within part two is how to love eating vegetables. So let's continue down this vegetable path. Can, can you give us a couple of ideas from the book about how we can love our vegetables more? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, this is, uh, let me say, this is one of the challenges a lot of people face is, you know, we think about all the kids who are told, you can have your dessert after you eat your vegetables, and they scrunkle their face, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they fight their way through it, and they maybe even try to hide it in their lap, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, because it becomes uh, a chore, right? Mm. And a lot of us feel that way, and we may grit our teeth and do it or not, but at the end of the day, you're probably not going to per persevere with something if you don't learn to enjoy it, because mm. most of us want to enjoy our lives, and it's a whole lot easier to live them abundantly if what we surround ourselves with is enjoyable as mm -hmm. well as good for us. So how do you make eating vegetables enjoyable? Well, one thing you can do is add them to all kinds of things. You can try making them uh, a centerpiece rather than a side dish. So, you know, making, you know, spaghetti and then you use the zucchini pasta or try, uh, try yeah. making a wonderful curry sauce and then putting it over veggies with and look at, look at your potato or your sweet potato or your quinoa or your legumes as a side and put vegetables in the center of your plate. Make sauces you love. Use spices. Spices are so underappreciated mm -hmm. for their culinary value. Mm -hmm. I mean, around the world, they're not. Around the world, in most countries, uh, mm -hmm. spices are the centerpiece of what makes cultural cuisine what it is. But in the U.S., in the U.K., in Australia, and a lot of the so-called civilized, developed yeah. world, that's how we think yeah. of ourselves, we yeah. have completely lost touch with the power of spices. We use salt and sugar and fat to flavor our foods. Well, we're missing out on so much fun. I mean, there's nothing wrong with salt, sugar, or fat inherently, but when they become how you add flavor and you miss out on the incredible savory and sweet and pungent flavors that are available from spices, you're missing so much fun. So... Spices also have incredible healing value, and they're a great thing. You know, make friends with your spice rack, with your sauces and curries, and add them to veggies, and you get a whole new flavor in the mix. Learn to also cross the savory and sweet lines up. We're finding we can use pineapple in all kinds of savory dishes. We can add uh, spices, even like allspice or nutmeg or cinnamon sometimes okay, to yep. a savory dish. And then for that matter, trying some chili in a sweet dish, yeah. you know, chili chocolate. I mean, we're finding that Sometimes these lines get crossed and the food gets a whole lot more interesting. Uh, as far as vegetables specifically with kids, it's nice to chop them in funny shapes and yeah. make little cutouts. 
Um, having them on hand when hunger strikes is important. We had a mm. time a little while back when we were noticing as we were making dinner, our kids were getting snacky and they were rummaging through the cupboards, <laughs> yeah. finding whatever they could grab yeah. and they were filling up on that. And then we'd make dinner and put it on the table and they're like, sorry, we're full. <laughs> so what we started doing was we'd steam a nice little pot of veggies and put it on the table yeah. uh, along with maybe a hummus or yeah. some kind of a dipping sauce. Uh, sometimes we just put out, you know, carrots or celery and some peanut butter, whatever it was, we get some healthy stuff out there on the table. And if they want to fill up, let them fill up on veggies. Mm. And our kids have literally devoured an entire head of cabbage before dinner. Wow. And then they sit down and if they're full, it's like, no problem, kids, <laughs> you're doing great. So the same is true for us. If yeah. you, uh, snacks, uh, comprise about a quarter of our calories typically. Wow. Yeah. They're like another meal. Yep. about 600 calories a day for the average American. And most of those snacks are some of the worst foods. Right. They tend to be highly processed, things yep. you can grab and go that have come out of a package. Mm. So if you can plan ahead, snack on your hummus with carrots and celery, snack on your peanut butter logs on, and celery, snack on you know some steamed kale or veggies. And that's a snack you don't have to feel guilty about. Yeah. And if you get the munchies late at night, go for it. I, not that long ago, our son River was... Uh, he got the munchies. He'd already brushed his teeth and he's snacking on, you know, cabbage, steamed cabbage. And I'm thinking his dentist might not approve, but this is kind of cool. It sure beats late night donut binges, you know? Uh, so when you actually uh, surround yourself with healthy foods, then they become the path of least resistance because that's yeah. what's there. Yeah. And a lot of the key is stocking the right things and having the right things on hand. And frankly, having them ready to go when you need them, because most of us, if you're like me, you get busy and you don't want to stop and spend 45 mm. minutes in the kitchen in the middle of your busy day or before you go off to work first thing in the morning. So planning ahead in quantity is really helpful. And then finding the, the ways that work for you. You can also add veggies to everything from smoothies to pasta sauces to mm. lasagna. You know, mm. just keep sticking them in there, even with, if with other foods. It's amazing how it all adds up and you can wind up just learning to love veggies more and more and more. Your taste buds will change. That's yeah. the other thing I want to say. They really do evolve. You're, they, they, they have a pretty high amount of turnover every two weeks. So uh, even in just as little as a couple of weeks, they can literally change what, what things taste like and how they feel and new habits get formed. If, if it rains, the water flows into the, the point of lowest land area and it'll go into grooves and eventually they become gullies and eventually creeks and eventually rivers. Mm -hmm. And what uh, we all know is that those those pathways tend to be pretty consistent from winter to winter. Well, I live in California, so it rains in the winter here, but you know, from, from rainy rainstorm to rainstorm, the water will go where it usually does. And those grooves get deeper. So my point is that habits are kind of like that. And when you create, use your willpower to create new habits, then your path of least resistance becomes the healthy one. Yeah. And that's the right use of willpower, not to fight in the middle of a rainstorm to push the water to go in the right place. But when it's sunny, when it's clear, go out there in your field and find the spot that the water goes and create the groove you want. And then that's where it'll go the next time it rains. Nice. Yeah, I like that. Now, I have a question for you. Uh, uh, this is relevant to part three in your gather. You have a number 21 of the 31 different sections is eat well when you go out. Now, what we find with inflammatory arthritis is that oils, vegetable oils, really tend to stir up inflammation in the body. I'd just like to get your own sort of thoughts regarding whether you've observed that uh, yourself with uh, people you've worked with, talked to, spoken with, had questions at seminars, whatever, and also whether or not you 
mention this in your book and whether or not uh, oils are something that Ocean Robbins considers okay or not. I'm not a big fan of bottled oils. I'm not a big fan of processed anything. You know, I think there's a place for processing now and then a little bit of it's not going to kill you, most likely. I mean, there are there are conditions where it actually could. But in most cases, for most people, most of the time, uh, it's all about, you know, the dose determines the poison and right. uh, moderation of anything can generally be survived. Not maybe not um, dioxin, but, you know, most things. However, uh, they're not good for you. They're a processed food. What we've yeah. done is we've taken a whole food, whether it's rapeseed or you know, soybean or corn or um, sunflower seeds and we've or olives, and we've stripped away the fiber and a lot of the vitamins and minerals, and we've just pulled out the oil, which is not unlike what happens when you create processed sugar or refined flour. You strip away a bunch of a food and you're left with just a piece of it, and then we use that for various purposes. So inherently, there's kind of a problem with the oil concept, unless you're using it as a supplement. Now, there are some supplements that can be helpful. In general, I think we should get nutrients from food. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a lot of data telling us that most of us do better with some vitamin B12. 25% of the American public, not just vegans, are deficient in B12. And there's also issues with vitamin D3. We're finding that vitamin D is something that most of us don't get enough of. We're not in the sun nearly as much as our ancestors were, and we're paying a terrible price for that. So those are a couple supplements I highly recommend. And then omega-3 fatty acids are another, which brings us back to the oil piece. Yes, because yes. DHA and EPA in particular yes. are two of the omega-3 fatty acids that you can't get from plant foods, except algae. And most of us don't eat a heck of a lot of algae. So if you're interested in getting EPA and DHA, you either need to incorporate some fish into your diet or you need to supplement with uh, some algae-sourced EPA and DHA, and that's an mm. oil. You can also take some flax oil or incorporate flax seeds and chia seeds, better yet, into your diet, ideally ground up to, to be able to really absorb them. Uh, and that can be good for fighting inflammation too, by the way. Omega-3s are strong inflammation fighters. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a place for that, but it's a, you know, it's a supplement. You don't want to yeah. base your diet around it. And some yeah. people who are trying to avoid oils altogether, eating out can be tricky because, Restaurants are catering to a public that's used to certain tastes and cuisines. And frankly, we live in a society that is overwhelmed. It's practically swimming in oil and salt and, yeah. and uh, sugar. And so depending on you know how far you want to go and what your particular dietary pattern is, eating out can be more or less difficult. Some of the top tips are you can actually uh, search online for healthy restaurants in a specific area, and you may be surprised to find some you didn't even know about that advertise themselves that way. Obviously, just because somebody appears on that list doesn't mean they are healthy, but it may be. Or if you're vegetarian or vegan, go ahead and put that in there, and you'll find that if they, when they created their website, if they took the time to say healthy or vegan or vegetarian, then at least they want to cater to that audience. So it's a certain filter, right? Mm. And then check out their menus online. See what's there. You can do a little advanced research so you don't wind up in a place that can't accommodate your needs. Mm. Or when you walk in, ask for the menu first thing. If you're going out with friends or loved ones and they're going to a place that doesn't have anything on the menu that you would typically want to eat, you can decide, are you willing to compromise or not? But you can also order what I call off the menu, which is to say you can make special requests yeah. with all the ingredients that they already have. And many restaurants want to accommodate you. I was in a hotel not too long ago and they didn't have anything I could eat, but I really wanted to hang out with my friends. Uh, so I ordered, uh, I asked the, them to combine a kind of unique mix and they, I ended up with a sweet potato and, um, you know, a curry sauce from yeah. another dish they had oh, and yeah. a bunch of chili and, uh, 
Yeah, and then cool. I had uh, some different spices and then I got a side of uh, like three different sides of vegetables and I had a feast, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the height of gourmet cuisine, <laughs> but it definitely worked. None of what I ate was actually on the menu per se, Yeah. but they had all the ingredients and they were happy to accommodate. They were a little confused how to bill me, but we worked it out <laughs> and everyone yeah. wanted something that was fair. And, uh, you know, you can do that. They are in the business of serving you. And I'll tell you what, if enough people make requests like that, I'll bet you before long, a restaurant like that's going to serve sweet potatoes with curry sauce that's right. on the menu. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? That's how the world changes. When I was a kid, restaurants didn't even know what vegetarian was. They were like, oh, we got the chicken over here, you know. Yeah. And nowadays they do. And mm -hmm. they often even have vegetarian menus or mm -hmm. sections of the menu. And this is becoming common. And it all started because people asked. So same yes. thing. If you're oil-free, ask for it. Let them know what your needs are. And a lot of them can accommodate. If they don't have a chef that it can accommodate, then I am guessing that they're probably not on the leading edge of healthy food. Yeah. And yeah. that's a place you can go once in a while, but it's probably not what you want to depend on for your, for your health. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's some great ideas there regarding to picking from different food items on the menu and being able to say, well, look, you already have that. Let's combine that and that and that. You know, I've never quite gone that far, but that's a level of... Uh, creativity that I'm going to apply next time as well. Um, so I know we're coming up to our time. We, uh, you've been generous with your time with us. I'd like you to, before we just uh, direct people to where they can get a copy of your book, how do you see the future of this plant-based movement going? Certainly I've seen a massive shift, as you just alluded to, with restaurants catering more towards plant-based eaters, certainly vegetarians. Where do you see, as a, as a family, with yourself and your dad and I'm sure your, your, your children going forward as a as next generation, do you see a future in which most human beings are eating a plant-based diet? Well, I mean, it is remarkable how fast plant-based eating is spreading. The number of Americans who identify as vegan has increased fourfold in the last four years. I'm not kidding. I mean, that's a major change. Yeah. The number of uh, Germans who are uh, eating a no or low meat diet has increased from 22% over 40% in the last few years. It's amazing. The, the number of Brits who are going plant-based has like doubled in the last few years. So all over the world, we're seeing a radical shift. Now, is that is that does that mean that it's going to become normal to be vegan? I'd be a little surprised, to be honest yeah. with you. It could be. But I think that the acceptability of being plant-based of deriving most of our calories from whole plant foods, that's, that's growing fast. And I don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon. If you look at the blue zones, the places in the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives, this has been documented by Dan Buettner for National Geographic. We see that um, generally the people in those regions, I mean, they're very varied in their diets and their life patterns, but they all get a lot of exercise. They all have strong family bonds. They all have stress reduction tools and methods built into their lives. And they all eat a predominantly whole foods plant-based diet. They, uh, of the five official blue zones, four of them uh, are not vegetarian or vegan per se, but they get between five and 10% of their calories from animal products. And one actually is tending towards vegetarian or vegan. That's Loma Linda, California. Uh, but they're all, you know, five or 10% or 0% is a far cry from 34%, which is what we average in the United States. The average American gets 34% of calories from animal products and about 50% from processed foods. Uh, and animal products. So what's what's left is, yeah. you know, 16% or so from whole plant foods 
And we need to flip that on its head. If we get yeah. 85% from whole plant foods, we're doing pretty darn good. Some yeah. people want to go to 100%. At the end of the day, what matters is the direction we move. And uh, whether you go sort of all the way or most of the way is up to a lot of different factors. Your personal choice, your life context, your health history and reality, uh, your environment, your stage of life, what resources you have, financial and otherwise. Sure. But uh, I think that at the end of the day, the direction most of us need to move is super clear. And I think a lot of us are, you know, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. We're hungry for a change. We're fed up with toxic food and, and we're making a difference with our own lives and in the culture. And this is a part that I think is actually really exciting. Every single person who chooses to take a stand for healthier food is actually a leader. Because to be a leader is to do something different than the norm for reasons of conscience or intentionality or purpose. And that naturally creates a gravitational pull away from the norm and towards a new possibility. People feel the conviction, they feel the purpose, they feel the values, and they frankly see your health and they wanna be more like you. So that's how we get momentum in this food revolution. And, and the food industry, which has made billions, it's made a killing <laughs> off of making us sick, uh, is starting to get with the program. More and more food companies are realizing that they've lost the trust of the consumer, and that if they just focus on selling processed junk and trying to make it as tasty and appealing and fattening as possible, they are gonna kill their customers and they're gonna lose their business. And so more and more of these companies are starting to slowly look at how they can make changes, mm. partly for marketing and PR reasons, partly because they actually genuinely want to do the right thing. And uh, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. But I yeah. think we're going to see more and more food companies uh, reducing their ingredients, reducing the amount of toxins, reducing the amount of sugar. Uh, it's more and more organic, natural, non-GMO, whole food offerings. Uh, on market in supermarkets, in mm. restaurants, and in our kitchens. Yeah, absolutely. It is exciting. And you know, I was reading about reports about you know meat and dairy industries investing their own money into plant-based alternatives. So there's this cross-pollination or cross-covering all bases from those industries as they see those uh, plant-based uh, product lines on the rise. So, you know, they know what's yeah. up. They know things are shifting. They can see which yeah. direction that the money's going and they don't want to miss out on that as well. But there's yeah. so much we could talk about. Uh, there's so many other things I want to chat with you about, but uh, um, people can get a ton more from you from your fantastic book, 31 Day Food Revolution by Ocean Robbins. You can get it by going to uh, that name, 31 Day Food Revolution, uh, which is 31 the number, dayfoodrevolution.com online. Um, and also join the Food Revolution group. Go across to Food Revolution and be able to uh, get the, uh, those information products, um, emails and so forth, and online uh, training regarding how to eat healthier and um, as a result improve not just your own life but uh, save the planet, let's face it, and with endorsements that you have you know, from Paul McCartney and, and, and so many other prominent others like Tony Robbins, obviously no relation, but we're talking Anthony Robbins, the coach, uh, and so many others. Go and check it out. This is a fantastic book that I'm going to – actually, I'm waiting on my copy. Your publicist sent me a copy in the mail, so I'm waiting <laughs> on my – it didn't quite arrive before our interview, uh, but I'm very excited to read it, and uh, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing what you've shared with us today. And also, from a personal viewpoint, having such fantastic – speakers such as yourself, such pioneers in this field, 
to be in our court and on our team and uh, helping to shape the way that people think about food and what it's doing to their bodies and, uh, and, and how it can impact so many things other than, than just themselves. Uh, it's, it's really great to, uh, to have you out there doing what you're doing, writing books like this, and uh, hopefully we can uh, meet in person one day at an event or something. And uh, I'd, uh, I'd really enjoy that. So thanks very much for coming on the episode. You too. Thank you so much, Clinton. To everybody who's listening, thank you for caring. Thank you for investing your most precious resource, which is your time and attention in learning. You know, food can be medicine. It can be healing. It can be medicine for you. And it can also be medicine for our society and, and our planet. So thank you for learning and engaging and for your partnership in this food revolution. Let's do this. And if my book, 31 Day Food Revolution, can support you on your path, I am thrilled. That's why I wrote it. So go ahead and check it out. You can also get it from your local bookstore. And, uh, and thank you for your partnership in this revolution, because we are just getting started, but we're going to do some big things together. I know it. And thank you so much, Clint. Awesome. Thanks, Ocean. You've been listening to the Pattison Program. For more information, visit pattisonprogram.com.